Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. He's nearing the end of a long tour for this book, so let's give him an extra warm welcome. Joseph O'Neill. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello. The dog in L.A. Um, Well, um, I'm just trying to grapple with this water. Um, Thank you for coming out. Um, Sorry about that. I'm still trying to there's a sort of, I'm still trying to recover from the sort of strange futility of the drive here. Well, there was one car ahead. I was just saying this to my friend Alex. There was one car ahead of us who was sort of with us the whole way and fighting the traffic with me. And he was sort of, you know, and then after pulling in, risking his life and this kind of stuff. And then eventually he just turned, into a ham- turned off into a hamburger place. <laughs> I thought, what is the point of, what was the point of that? Um, but this, on the other hand, is a very important, you know, event and occasion. So thank you very much um, for doing, for risking your lives, and uh, and the rest of it. Um, so I'm, I was, the dog is a book <laughs> that I wrote, and it uh, it came out as it were, came out. Um, I like that. In about 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 a month ago, and um, what can I say about it? That's the question. Um, it's set in Dubai, and I was thinking of, of reading something I haven't read yet, um, just to sort of get things going. Um, the narrator is. Um, a guy who lives in um, New York City to begin with and um, is, is having a very bad time of it um, because his relationship has come to an end um, with his girlfriend who happens to be a law partner his partner in his law firm um, and then he's just, he, it's also just, just a horrible breakup as well um, unlike all the very happy breakups that the rest of us have um, so um he moves into uh, he sort of flees his home with her and moves into a building um, which um, which is overlooks the, he says he moves into a a, a a luxury rental with a view of Lincoln Tunnel traffic um, uh, so this is what I'm going to read so um He says, so um, I moved into, in the fall of 2006, I moved into a, what the, all right, I'll start again. I'm just keep trying to skip things. Um, I moved into a luxury rental with a view of Lincoln Tunnel traffic. This move, which involved some extraordinarily painful and exhausting and unbelievable scenes, at least brought what might be called spatial realism to our situation. 
It was to this apartment of reality that I returned from the trip made in vain to London. No need to worry about that. I'm skipping all that. Um, it was around this time that every evening after work, I tried to run from my building's lobby to my luxury rental on the 18th floor. He's, he's moved into a luxury rental. The intention must have been to become fitter, more competent, clear my mind, etc. I used the emergency stairway. To begin with, I could only run up to the third floor and would, in effect, creep up the rest of the way. Though I improved quickly, the going was always very hard after ten floors or so, and in order to push myself, I suppose, I fell into the habit of imagining that I was a firefighter and that a fire raged on the eighteenth floor, and two young sisters were trapped up there in the smoke and the flames. The problem with this motivational fantasy was that it placed excessive demands on my real-world athletic capacities, so that by the time I finally reached my luxury rental, I'd been in a state of very real distress because I was too late to save the two little girls, images of whose futile struggle for survival would pass through my mind in horrible flashes as I made my desperate sweating ascent. A shower and a bud light would just about wash away this upset, but I doubt it was a coincidence that during this period I found myself brooding on the story of the Subway Samaritan, the New York construction worker who had, back in January, jumped in the path of an oncoming subway train to rescue a man who, in the course of a seizure, had fallen onto the tracks. Specifically, the Subway Samaritan had pushed the fallen traveler into the trench between the tracks and laid on top of him while the screeching train passed overhead. I deeply envied this man, though not on account of the money and benefits in kind that immediately rained down on him. The subway Samaritan, who had acted for the benefit of a stranger, himself became the beneficiary of the largesse and assistance of parties personally unknown to him, including Donald Trump, $10,000 check, Chrysler, gift of a Jeep Patriot, The Gap, $5,000 gift card, Playboy Enterprises, Inc., free lifetime subscription to Playboy magazine. The Samaritan had worn a Playboy beanie, had worn a beanie with a Playboy logo during the rescue. The New York Film Academy, $5,000 in acting scholarships for the Samaritan six and eight-year-old daughters. This is all true. The fallen traveler was a student at the Film Academy. The Walt Disney World Resort, all expenses paid trip to Disney World, plus Mickey Mouse ears for the girls. Hold on. Is this neighborhood the birth? I was told is the birth is the birthplace of Mickey Mouse. Yeah, significant. Um, plus tickets for the Lion King, the New Jersey Nets free season ticket, Beyonce complimentary backstage passes and tickets to a Beyonce concert, Jason Kidd signed Jason Kidd shirt, Progressive gratis two years of Progressive auto insurance. <laughs> That's I would take it. I'm taking it, and even better, I, I add, I interpolate the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. One year supply of Metro cards. <laughs> I think that's cheap. I really do. But anyway. Nor was it the case that I envied the Samaritan his sudden celebrity and public glory. He could keep his bronze medallion from the city of New York and his appearances on Letterman and Ellen. And he was certainly welcome to his guest appearance at the State of the Union address of George W. Bush, at which bearing the title The Hero of Harlem, 
like Lenny Skutnik, the hero of the Potomac before him, he was the object of congressional and presidential admiration and congratulation. Though my envy belonged to a less material, though maybe no less indefensible plane. I coveted the Samaritan's newly earned and surely undisputed privilege to walk into a room, an everyday room, containing everyday persons, and be there received as your presumably decent human being, presumably doing a pretty decent job of doing his best to do the right thing in what is, however you look at it, a difficult world. But no, that privilege was disputed. It came to my notice that even the Subway Samaritan could not escape criticism from the online community. <laughs> some members of which apparently didn't buy the whole story and suspected something fishy was going on and noted that at the time of the incident this man was escorting his daughters to their, i.e. their mothers, i.e. not the Samaritans, home. Had inexplicably and recklessly preferred the interests of a total stranger to those of his daughters and, reading between the lines of even respectable threads, was a lowly African-American man, and thus prima facie a parental failure, and a person of hidden or soon-to-be-revealed criminality. I remember one electronic bystander invoking what he called the Stalin principle. That is, he rhetorically asked if Stalin would be a good guy <laughs> just because he'd once helped a little old lady to cross the road. More clever than this small-minded chorus and more menacing to one's simple admiration of and gratitude for a brave and worthy deed were those who questioned the whole quote-unquote heroism industry, who suggested that this kind of uncalled-for and disproportionately self-sacrificial intervention was ethically invalid because it could hardly be said that good people habitually did or should do likewise and that, moreover, it was stupid retroactively to treat as virtuous an obviously reckless act that could very easily have had the consequence of depriving two children of their father. Another commenter even proposed that there was no point in looking for moral lessons in the behavior of some unthinking, instinctual, i.e. black, man, whose actions in their randomness and spontaneity and irrationality were essentially akin to the motiveless pushing of persons onto the tracks <laughs> that also occurred in the New York subway. I was like, who died and made these people pope? Anyway, so that's anyway. So that was, uh, that's that. just unbelievable that's that whole saga um, so what happens is you know this is the sort of sort of state he's in 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 New York and event, and then he meets his friend from college a friend randomly from college who he hasn't seen for, for decades and um, the friend turns out to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars or his family does the Batros family and um, his friend says to him why don't you become the family officer for my family in Dubai? Um, family officer is, um, as we know, the person we hire to handle the fact that we're too rich. <laughs> yeah, 
as we know, if one has hundreds of millions, maybe six, seven hundred billion dollars, it's an onerous state to be in. It's a bad, it's a tricky situation. And you need a family officer to help you to spend it, keep track on all of it, keep track on all the yachts and the houses, um, sort of do your philanthropy, if you, do, if you want to do that. Which is helpful. The great thing about philanthropy is it helps you get rid of, spend some of it. Um, and so forth. So the guy accepts the job, which happens to be in Dubai, a city he's a, he has absolutely no interest in. Um, and then he, uh, there comes a point where, and this is the second, I'm going to read two more pages, or th I think that'll be it for the reading, then we can talk if you want, interact. Um, there comes a point where he's summoned to the yacht of the head of the family, George Batros, who's made all the money. Oh. Handy bottle of water, that one. And um, so, uh, he and there's all sorts of things going on in, in Dubai. Um, it's a, it's a sort of night. The job is. A, I'm just looking for the page. What I said. So I'm just burbling on when I do that. I keep losing this page. I, I have pages I don't want to read from flagged, but the page I do want to read from is not flagged for some reason. Um, let me just just see this. Hold on. Um, yeah, so he lives in in the um, here we go in the um, in Dubai. He moves into a, into a into a building called the Situation <laughs> because that's a sort of prestigious name, and you know Dubai is all about the brand Dubai. Du when you're in Dubai, they they actually call they don't even refer to it as a, as, a, as, a, as a sort of as a place as a sort of political entity, or like you know like a like a state or an emirate. They refer to it as brand Dubai. Yes, well, brand you know, and everything is under just decided in you know by the ruler, as he's called, the sheikh who is the head of state, goes by the official title of the ruler. Um, it's all done in, in relation to the you know how to develop brand Dubai. Um, but that's by the by, because I'm now going to read. So, so he did. So he's called to this. Um, he's called to this. Uh, he gets a phone call from George, who he's only met once before, briefly. Um, they speak uh, French. It's a Lebanese Christian uh, rich family, so they speak French and Arabic. And, of course, English as a sort of, you know, third language or fourth language. I did as instructed. The next morning I packed a bag, got into the Batros Gulfstream 100, Lotobus in the family slang, <laughs> and flew to Antalya, Turkey. From there I took a two-hour taxi ride to Finike, a small coastal town. The Giselle, that's the name of the yacht, too big for the marina, was anchored well offshore. A crew member collected me in a rubber dinghy, incidentally trying to break the world water speed record. Waiting at the, st at the top of the boarding ladder was George Batros. He wore a naval peaked cap, shorts, and no shirt. Okay, yalla, he said to the captain. To me, he said, welcome aboard, and he kissed me on both cheeks. Somebody took my bag. Somebody took me to the dining deck. Somebody made me a gin and tonic. I didn't want a gin and tonic, <laughs> but what the hell? It was good to have got out. This is his whole, this is part of it. I mean, he has a lot of things. One of the things he does is, is every, he's nothing. He feels he's constantly being coerced. He is not, he is almost never 
in a voluntary situation. Anyway, in his mind. Um, and nor does he want to be. He, in fact, his, his uh, ambition when he goes to Dubai is to essentially disappear. Um, it was good to have got out of the desert and I'd never been on a private cruise or visited this part of the ancient world. The yacht or ship slipped past aquamarine inlets and between small islands where wild olive trees grew out of grey and white rocks. The mountains, precipitous and forested, were beautiful. A cool breeze blew. I inhabited the world of Rolex. You're familiar with the world of Rolex, right? From the it's, it's a, Apparently there's a world out there called the world of Rolex. <laughs> no, no, seriously. It's, 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 it does exist. You ha I think you have to buy a Rolex to go there. But, although even... Anyway, never mind. <laughs> and yet I was jumpy. Why? Because I am not a total dope. I wasn't going to fall into the trap of equating beautiful surroundings with a beautiful state of affairs. When in Beirut, Eddie introduced me to his father, he said, you're going to like him. He's mellowed a lot since the old days. People who are said to have mellowed always make me nervous. Meanwhile, I had already figured out that to even begin to understand the Batros family, you had to understand the money. The Batros sons are highly remunerated, salaries, bonuses, stock options, employment benefits, but many of their largest capital assets, houses, boats, lump sums, interest-free loans, have essentially remained in the gift of their father, who was the majority shareholder of Batros Holdings Limited, incorporated in the DFC, which in turn wholly owns the Batros subsidiaries, of which there are more than 50, which in turn own who knows how many sub-subsidiaries. I've actually had the idea, which I might, of doing a novel with corporate persons as the characters. Because apparently that's now, anyway, yeah, that's actually where we're headed. Um, and that's a, there's a bit of that in this book. Uh, George still controls most of the money, is what it comes down to. He joined me. He had undressed and wore only a white towel around his waist. He unknotted the towel and draped it over the seat of his chair. Now he was naked. <laughs> a pharmacologistical young woman began to shampoo his hair. Most of the ultra HNW, high net worth, individuals I've met are idiosyncratically demanding, and everyone is familiar with the larger than life, I make my own rules, display of power. And I understand that gratuitous domestic nudity is prevalent among the rich and famous <laughs> as a kind of very authoritative informality. Yes, I've noticed that as well. Even though I would willingly entered into the company of George Battles and maybe on some level had sought him out, I began to feel that my situation was objectionable as well as precarious. I had no idea how long I was expected to stay on this boat or why I'd been summoned. The Giselle I knew was making its annual odyssey from Beirut to Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, Saint where Madame Batros, née Alice Rourke in Mullingar, Ireland, was already summering in the Villa Batros, a magnificent cliff-top mansion with a private jetty. Where was I supposed to get off? Piraeus? Portofino? Surely there is more than a trace of false imprisonment about hospitality from which there is no escape. <laughs> George got to his feet and took a shower. 
The female crew member trained a high-powered hose on him as though he were on fire. He thoroughly lathered himself, dick and balls especially, and rinsed his hair and hopped around in the water jet. He kept chatting to me, even as the crew member toweled him down. There was something villainous about him. He reminded me of, this of those clever murderers who for a while run rings around Lieutenant Columbo. So I'm going to skip the next bit, um, which is in fact the best bit of the book. <laughs> Very funny and sort of moving. Um, and sort of just, you know, just uh, frankly the best thing I've ever done, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> to, we have to move on. Move on. Always turn, the, always, be t always be moving on. As the, what's that? Always be closing. So, yeah, there you go. Always be closing. So, um, so we're moving on from that. Good stuff. And on to the, continue with the passage I've chosen to read. Um, the passage I, I, I'm, I'm not reading, just just so you know. No, actually, no, forget about it. Um, so, George says, George, then George was telling me all about the crewing arrangements. Two Norwegians, a Greek chef, five others from ethnically prestigious parts of Western Europe. Their uniform consisted of white Lacoste shirts, white sailing shorts with the Giselle monogram, and classic blue and white boat shoes. They all wore the same sunglasses. Uniformity aside, they might have been gung-ho young bankers on holiday. George said, these people are the best in the world. I said something like, yeah, they look like they're really stoked. <laughs> he called out to one of the deckhands, Giancarlo. The fellow came bounding over. George said something to him in Italian. Presently, the boat dropped anchor. I heard splashes. Giancarlo and two others had plunged into the sea. They swam to the shore, climbed over the tricky rocks, and made their way up to the hill, up the hill to where a herd of goats was feeding on bushes. There was no sign of a goat herd. Giancarlo turned towards us and waved. He gestured at a black goat, and George gave him a double thumbs up. The three men jumped on the black goat and wrestled it to the ground and instantly roped its legs. I might have been watching a rodeo. Giancarlo slit the animal's throat. They held it down while it kicked and bled out. This lasted for some time. Giancarlo towed the carcass back, trailing a messy red stream. The three men stood on the deck, wet and bloody. They held up the dead goat. Bravo, bravo, George Batros said, applauding. Everyone applauded, me included. You see, he said to me, this is the quality of these men. Unbelievable, wow, I said. <laughs> there seemed no point in raising the issue of compensation for the owner of the goat. A short while later, the chef arrived with a serving dish. The liver, George said. Fresh, fresh. He cut a piece off the red mass, squeezed lemon juice over it, and began to eat. Fantastic, he said. Take some. There is nothing healthier. I accepted a piece against my will. I did not want to put a part of the goat inside me. And then he goes on. Even you know, the good stuff. Anyway, I just read that. Thank you. That's, that's all the reading I'm doing. All right. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just—I mean, I haven't even begun to describe the book, but um, you get a—you get some taste of it there. Um, what else happens in it? That's quite—not much actually. Um, 
he lives in Dubai, in this, and he tries to sort of live a life neither in the right nor in the wrong, as he puts it. And um, that's obviously a ridiculous ambition, because you know if you think about it, it's, you're just doing wrong all day long, basically. <laughs> so um, um, I suppose one way of talking about the Dubai thing is um, is is to return um, to this question of the subway Samaritan. Um, and um, this, the significance for, m for me, which is obviously subjective and, and, and not a significance other readers need accept, um, but it seems to me that when you're talking about the subway, when, they, when, they, when, they, when the media labeled this guy the subway Samaritan, I, I immediately began to think of the actual Samaritan and, um, and the story of the Good Samaritan, which is um, a story which, in which Christ is addressing a number of people um, and about the kingdom of heaven. And he says to them, um, oh, and then he's asked, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And he says, love thy neighbor. And then a lawyer who's present, who's <laughs> literally a lawyer, says, who is my neighbor? Which is a very good question. And then he tells the parable of a good Samaritan. Uh, to, uh, I suppose, explain that, as we would put term it in, in, in sort of in sort of more sort of more modern for theoretical language, that the other is also our neighbour, and um, that idea has sort of underpinned Western ethics uh, for at least two thousand years. And in fact, by that when it was enunciated by Christ, I understand it was already a very uh, uh, old idea. Um, and um, the question of who is my neighbor is a question which is has taken a very real and new complexion in um, recent times with the effect of, I suppose, globalization um, and particularly a globalization of information <coughs> through the internet so that we now have potentially three billion neighbors or however many people are on the planet. We are not, um, we are exposed to the claims made on our conscience and the, as it were the cries for help um, from everywhere in a way that didn't, that wasn't the case um, it, until, you know, recent times. And um, so in other words, it was a manageable, it felt like a manageable practical obligation to think, well, you know, particularly in sort of, pre-technological times before, you know, when you you really could had a very sort of limited exposure to information and uh, and contact with, other, with with people who were not, you know, within your immediate group. Um, and so the, 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 I suppose one of the big questions which is now uh, sort of asked, which people ask, think, which certain sort of people are asking themselves is, is, you know, how do we how do we manage this the neighbor principle now when now that there's no end to our neighbor our neighborhood is infinite and um in dubai the answer is it would appear to be you manage it by in this way you don't love your neighbor that's how you manage it and and that's logical it's a very logical thing um, so that the, in dubai for example 10 percent of the population are, are citizens 
and sort of ninety percentish are denis or economic denizens or which is to say tourists or well foreign workers, so that they only have um, a native element what is deemed to be a native element of, of you know one tenth of the population and um, and they sort of don't so that, and they have no interest in, in the 90%, who in turn have very little interest in the Dubaians. And within the 90%, you have all these other categories. Um, the two main categories, I suppose, are kind of people from sort of eastern sort of part of the world, which is to say South Asia and the Philippines and those sorts of areas, um, who do all the menial work, often in conditions of near enslavement, and the sort of expats who can be... Um, the Western expats who have the kind of, oh, well, like this guy, who have kind of good work and um, also don't care about, and, and, and barely can, and also have problems caring about the poorer people. So um, there's all of that. And so the society is striated in this way, and no one cares for anybody, and it functions. And I suppose the whole thing is underwritten. The logic of it all is that everyone makes money, and which is a kind of, Kind of post, almost a post-enlightened logic now, um, which we're seeing, I suppose, which is another question the book looks into, is that in this kind of, at this point in capitalism, we, we're reaching the stage where, uh, if we, I mean, we always had, but it seems particularly interesting in Dubai, where, um, and in this country, obviously. Everything that's happening in, in Dubai, obviously, is happening in this. Because Dubai did, was, was, they didn't come up with the format for Dubai. They sort of said what they formatted. The country was merely formatted about 25 years ago. Um, until then, it was nothing. There was just this kind of a bunch of, a bunch of sand and a bunch of people who'd lived there for 150 years. That was Dubai. And um, so they had to sort of come up with a way to organize themselves. And, and they decided to become a tourist destination for us, mainly, for the Westerners. Um, although there's a massive Arab... Um, tourist element there. And then they sort of said, well, how do we do that? And they said, what do they want? And they said, shopping. <laughs> and so you shop. And, uh, and they also calculated, I said, they must have, I suppose, that it sort of, it doesn't really matter that you look out your windows, this character does, and you see sort of slaves, basically, working uh, outside. And that in you, if you, and there's a moment where he's sort of um, living in rented accommodation, where he keeps coming, he keeps sort of seeing this kind of population of cleaning people who sort of live in the building but in an alternative geography which is sort of designed not to not to sort of cross paths with him and every time he sort of accidentally cross paths with each other they sort of get scared of him run away and and vice versa he's scared of them um and it's just a horrible situation but that but you get used to that i suppose and you and again i said you know uh, the whole thing you know why not? Um, you, you say to yourself, on balance, well, right, I won't think about it. And you just go and you take a pragmatic view. So all of these ethical issues are sort of, it seems, are sort of central to this book. And this is a very sensitive protagonist who's always very sensitive to all that stuff and probably way too sensitive to it for his own good. So that's the sort of basic situation he's in. I mean, there's a lot now. This situation is much more complicated than that. But anyway, that's some of the stuff that he's, that's what he's got himself into. Any any questions? Hi. I'm assuming you lived in Dubai. Did you experience any of these that you carefully did? I never lived there. No, so it's all research. I went there for two weeks. Okay. I went there on two occasions. A week, one, one, so ten days to two weeks. And and, and that's where I, and then the rest of it, you, it's all online now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've heard some of the things that you said. It just sounds very experiential, so that's 
Well, when you get there, it's, it's exactly as you thought it would be. <laughs> that, and that's it, Dubai will make a promise, and then it delivers on that, sort of, on that promise. <laughs> there's no sort of mysterious hinterland of, of you know, there's no sort of, um, it is what it's supposed to be. Um, Obviously, there's, there are layers of sort of there is there's sort of specifics of complexity which which you learn about, and can there are slightly in between zones, um, but it's such a regulated place. Um, I should say that I didn't I haven't I'm not just trying to mock I didn't sort of spend five years thinking I'm going to mock Dubai, um, and in fact the people who really come in for the most who uh, our narrator is um, kind of really doesn't like and I really agree with him on this. He really doesn't like the kind of people who fly in and kind of mock the place and sort of point fingers at everyone and have it laughably materialistic and, and, and they are, and then flies back to London or New York or wherever, which are cities which are themselves been built on sort of 10,000 times more suffering than has than ever happened in Dubai. Um, so there's the sort of, the sort of, you know, the kind of privileged, kind of this, what he calls them, what does he call them? He calls them, he calls that sort of thing as, opportunistic moral hedonism where you just look around the world and you get this kind of just for this thrill of sort of feeling getting this feeling of being virtuous um, which is a kind of hedonistic I suppose um, process um, kind of following up on that you have lived in a lot of different countries is there any place like Dubai I never, not really. I mean, I, I, did, I do think that, uh, I mean, my mother is Turkish and she comes from an Arab minority in Turkey. And so I grew up listening to Arabic, my grandmother speaking Arabic. Um, but, uh, the, the, but these are sort of Syrian Christian too. So that had given me an insight into the Batros family, that sort of Lebanese Christian um, mercantile, very successful mercantile kind of class, um, which is, I think, fairly well represented in L.A., I think, um, is, um, is, is is something I know about. And, of course, but, but the Gulf Arabs are very different. They don't, you know, they speak Arabic. They don't, and there was no point where my mother's family would have felt any kind of particular affinity for the Gulf Arabs who, who, who just, who, although obviously speak the same language, are, are, you know, are a long way away in many, in many ways. And my father worked in Abu Dhabi for a while in the 70s, so the word Abu Dhabi in the Gulf, they were in my, uh, in my, in my head. So uh, you used cricket in Netherlands, uh, and you used scuba diving in the dog. Is, it, uh, is that sort of, do you like to use sort of this, the sports or? Yeah, I mean the scuba, there is scuba. I mean my intention with the dog was to, well, before I wrote the dog, was to write a novel set entirely underwater. And because it just felt like I wanted a language, I, I sort of believe that language is a kind of element. And I want, and so when I when I read the books, I like is when you open the book and the language feels like a different element. It doesn't feel like water, like air, or just it. It feels like its own element. And and I sort of thought if I write a novel set underwater, that might I might come close to doing that. Thankfully, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> But um, but in, 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 I do use there's a little bit of scuba diving in here, and I, and I wish I, I wish I'd written more. I've never been scuba diving. I'm too scared. But I have snorkeled. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, 
interesting down here, then you go up again. <laughs> yeah, I write a novel about that feeling. <laughs> but, yeah. So, um, yeah. But I, I love sports. I love physical. And I think it's, um, it's kind of, it, I, it's something I'm really connected to personally. I'm obsessed with. And in fact, I, I, you know, I, I do I feel I have a soccer novel inside me. Um, and I also feel by coincidence that uh, it's, for, for, especially for men, it's this kind of way of kind of navigating life. And I mean, you just, it's like a religion. With the absence of God, you just follow sports intensively and sort of believe in it in a strange way. And so I'm, and I'm interested in that kind of spiritual, in the fact that it's a sort of salvation for so many men in particular. Women, not so much, because um, for various reasons. Um, does George's feeling of not wanting to do good or bad have anything to do with being a lawyer? Um, yeah, I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, uh, George is the, is the uh, patriarch. X. We call it. Our character's called X. Oh, oh the main character. I'm sorry. He's called X. I mean, uh, I can get into that. I think. Well, he's not. He's not. I haven't named him. He is. That's his first name. Is X. It's his initial. Um, I'm not sure where it comes. I mean, it comes from shame. It comes from being fe being feeling kind of overwhelmed by the challenge of 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 just being a. Good, a good enough kind of person. And you know, with the Samaritan thing, he sort of thinks the great thing about being the subway Samaritan in principle is that you could at least, you know, you walk into a room and never not, people not sort of, who is the, you know, you feel that you've, you you feel less shameful. But of course, even the subway Samaritan, as we found out, is, is just, just treated like a piece of dirt by, you know, the online community, the so called online community. Um, talk about neighbor, talk about bad neighbors. Um, so, um, there, are, I, you know, I, in the ultimate. I mean, ultimately, he's dealing with a very ancient emotion, which is obviously original sin, guilt, shame, and that sort of um, feeling that you know, whatever you do, is basically for the worse. <laughs> I mean, he, this guy feels he even feels bad about going to the, taking a shit, taking a dump, because in Dubai the waste disposal situation is not well organized so it just ends up in these enormous mountains and it sometimes floats into the sea so even the most even your biological you are even biologically in the wrong and there's lots of stuff about um which i'm very interested in about biopower who organize who contains the biologically contains people and in for example in the scene about the goat the sort of which is also in my mind a scene about about you know the ruler and and the estate and all, all that kind of stuff um, is also about who controls the body, and the and he has the goat forced inside him. Um, the goat is killed and then forced. You know, I, I mean, it's all quite. And then there's the whole question of who could you know his body, the, the George the Patriarch being washed, his body being and his nudity being kind of gratuitous and powerful. You know, so the body thing. Uh, so even the biology. All the biological, anatomical stuff is sort of uh, somehow a kind of factor in all of this. Quite a bit of sacrament the whole ritual washing with the, the goat. Yeah, there is a sacramental thing. The body of Christ. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to just... Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so there's a sort of sacramental element to that whole... I've always been interested in the theology of, the, of, that, of that situation. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> yeah, see, it's not hard to pick up stuff. 
Um, thank you, though. That's really good. So, um, yeah, so there's that. And it, I, but I wrote the book as a kind of idea, as a, my main idea in writing it was is trying to be funny. So that it become, you know, so that it sort of, um, and it's, it's, I mean, you know, I guess you can't, um, yeah, so that's also I, something I bear in mind. So that, that although it sounds, although there's, I, I, I mean, I wrote it I, as a, after reading for nothing but philosophy, basically, for three years, because I was interested in the texture of philosophical prose and in the density of the philosophical. Also, I mean, the thing about language, I, I was thinking about it last night, actually. Why why is it that the philosophy stuff and the law stuff is so kind of, because uh, I was a lawyer for years, is so um, kind of influential, and I suppose, and so I, I like it so much. And I suppose it's because, it's, it's, there's a kind of drama of accuracy in philosophical writing. Can they accurately describe stuff? And, and in the legal world, it's also the same, trying to write stuff accurately. Because if you, if, if, you, if you misstate anything, it blows up in your face. And so that's, this is an enormous pressure to get it right, which is kind of funny as well, I think. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.